speaking of more than conquerors, let's turn to Romans 8, where that verse is found. Romans chapter 8. I did some major surgery in my notes this morning and cut out something that I might deal with at the close of Romans, but I decided to tackle this chapter. We're going to be majoring on it on Sundays. Romans 8 comes to a climactic declaration in 832 that God did not spare his son as he spared Abraham's son Isaac but freely handed him over on behalf of us all, in behalf of us all. And 11, Romans 11, on the midweek services, also comes to a climactic declaration in 1132, the 232s, at which time we'll be done with our exposition of Romans for now. 1132, God made the plan to put both Gentiles and Jews, all the nations, in one imprisonment, one prison camp, we could call it, and that's disobedience, so that he could have mercy on all. So the unrestricted love of God climaxes in 832, the universal mercy of God in 1132. Those are the twin peaks that we'll be closing with. For now... I'm going to teach on something that you probably never thought I would ever teach on, and it's called Hope for the Future of the World. My dearest friend growing up has recently got in touch with me, and we were fellow mischievous, impish children in Vermont, and he and his wife... His name is John Kenyon. Him and his wife, Kathy, are in charge of the 50th reunion thing, which is frightening to me. But I finally, I asked my grandsons, should I go to it? And they said, only if you like the people that were there. (laughs) And I said, well, there were a few. And then I thought, maybe I'll go to it if I don't have to dance. But... It reminded me, 50 years, come on, 1969. But then recently I was reading of something that was quoted, that was spoken in 1969 by the one that I regard probably the most influential theologian on me, as far as eschatology goes, Jürgen Moltmann. 50 years ago, almost exactly, 1969, three years before... I had my fateful confrontation with the Lord and was born into his kingdom and into his service. He said this, a Christian faith in God without hope for the future of the world has called forth a secular hope for the future of the world without faith in God. And this is very interesting. I want to say that again because I hope it sinks in. A Christian faith in God without hope for the future of the world has called forth a secular hope for the future of the world without faith in God. And this brings to bear the whole meaning of what what does apocalypse mean to us. The Christianity that has faith in God without hope for the future of the world expects the destruction of the world and the destruction of the universe and the damnation of a large segment of the human race. No wonder that Christian faith without hope for the future of the world was supplanted by and taken over by a secular hope for the future of the world without faith in God. In other words, the rise of ideologies like socialism and communism and other things, right and left, extremism, fascism, which are hopes for the future of the world without faith in God. So the failure is on the part of a Christian faith in God without hope for the future of the world. 
But we do not have that sense of apocalypse. And the way I use the word apocalypse does not refer to the destruction of the world, the dissolution of the universe, the damnation of a large segment of human beings and angelic beings. The apocalypse I'm talking about is the destruction of the forces that oppress and enslave and corrupt the universe, the creation, humanity. And so we have a Christian faith in God that has a profound and significant hope for the future of the world, the future of all creation. And I hope that the impetus and momentum of that hope will overcome the secular hope that lacks faith in God. The second thing I want to speak about today, hope for the future of the world, is more practical for us, perhaps, although that's a very practical hope. And that is life in the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Christ, life in the spirit of Christ in the clashing juncture of the ages. We live at the clashing junction of two ages. One is the old age on the way out, and we put off the old self that's connected to that age, and the new age, not as it's called by the age of Aquarius, but the age that was instituted with the Christ event is the one that we are called to live in, in the Holy Spirit, with a new self, putting on a new self, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we take up with Romans 8, and we're going to get right into it because there are several insights that I've collected and want to communicate, a collection of insights to communicate today. Life in the spirit of Jesus during the clashing juncture of the ages. In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, we'll pick up there. We've already dealt with it once. For those who are determined, that is, controlled or dominated by the flesh, Please note there that the flesh is not your human being or your physical humanity, but it is a suprahuman, oppressive power that once determined and controlled us. Those who are determined or dominated and controlled by the flesh, and that means and not the spirit, Think and intend with the flesh. But those who are determined by the spirit, this is the spirit of Christ that woke Jesus from the dead and wakes us up. Those who are determined, controlled, dominated by the spirit, think and intend with the spirit. Verse 6, for the mindset, we could call it, which I define as the fixed mental and intentional inclination, the inclination of the mind and the intent. There's a paradox that I want to speak about today, and that is the attaining of a higher viewpoint. The paradox is the attaining of a higher viewpoint leads to a lowly mind or humility. And then there's a virtuous circle created because a lowly mind leads to a higher viewpoint. But the higher viewpoint that we're talking about isn't one that gives us a sense of loftiness or what the scripture calls huper iphenos, showing ourselves to be above others. It's quite the opposite. It leads to humility of mind. And then the humility of mind to which it leads, leads to a higher viewpoint, more and more insights. And so there must be the attainment, which really comes by the gift of the Holy Spirit, of a Higher viewpoint. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Our thoughts under the controlling power of the flesh versus God's thoughts under the controlling power of the spirit. The mindset or the fixed mental and intentional inclination of the flesh, capital F, a superhuman power, is death. And notice that that's the same thing that sin leads to in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Sin with a capital S as a controlling suprahuman power. And so the mindset or the mind fixed and intent on the flesh is death. Doesn't say leads to death, says it is death. 
The experience is death. But the strangeness about this death is that you're living. But 1 Timothy 5, 6 captures this paradox and talks about someone who is dead while they're alive. The deadness here is being dead to God, dead to fellowship with God, dead to the living, active word in the kingdom of God, to the spirit. The mindset of the flesh is death. But the fixed inclination, we could say, the invariable inclination of the spirit, that's God's spirit, is life and peace. That's what I would call God-approved livingness in the kingdom of God. Now, now. For you see, he says in verse 7, the fixed or invariable mental and intentional inclination of the flesh is hostility against God by definition. It does not to submit to God's law. God's law here is not the law of Sinai, but the law of love. Love one another as I have loved you. The fixed mental and intentional inclination of the flesh is hostility against God by definition. It does not submit to God's law, neither is it able to do so. So what has to happen in what we call for 2019 Operation Epsilon is something that is another big word, but it's not to scare you. It's to open up new insights. Epistemology. Epistemology or epistemological. And that doesn't mean just knowing, but, the, but how we know. There has to be a transformation, not just in what we know, but in how we know. How we know. Do we know by the spirit or do we know by the flesh? So there has to be an epistemological transformation, a conversion. And that this begins with the E or the Epsilon is part of Operation Epsilon for 2019. That's what I'm labeling what the spirit is doing in this Tetelestai phalanx for this year. The transformation begins with presenting our bodies, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. We present our bodies that were once controlled by sin. We present them to God as a living sacrifice. Why a living sacrifice? Because it's our first sacred act of priestly service to God. He has made us a kingdom of priests to his father, having loosed us, liberated us from our sins by his blood. Romans, make that revelation, 1, 5, and 6. So, Operation Epsilon, an epistemological transformation in the way we know, begins with presenting our bodies, once controlled by sin, now no longer. We present those bodies to God as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service, which means it's our first sacred act of priestly service to God. We present our bodies for the transformation of our mind. There it is, the transformation of our mind. The transformation that occurs by continuous exposure to the truth of the gospel, which is the truth that's embodied in Jesus, is a new way of knowing because it is a new mind knowing. It's a new way to know because it's a new mind knowing. It's the mind of Christ. The subject, capital S, of our living is the subject of our knowing. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, said the man who shares the history of Christ, and no longer the history of Adam. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet it is not I, but Christ 
who lives. He is the prime subject of my living. We also must have Christ as the prime subject of our knowing. We could even say it is no, no longer I that know, but Christ knows in me, though I know. So I no longer know you the way I knew you before. I no longer know the world as I knew the world before. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. So the subject of our living is the subject of our knowing. This is what Paul meant when he said, we have the mind of Christ. And when he said to the Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so the mind of Christ is also the mindset of the spirit who now supplants the flesh, takes over the flesh so that the result is a new eschatological person in Christ supersedes the old and obsolete historical person in Adam. In this epistemological conversion, we could call it, the remedy that's brought to us by the gift of a higher viewpoint occurs. A remedy occurs in our thinking that remedies our biases, our prejudices, our resentment, our cliquishness, our factiousness. It's a conversion of the mind that's brought to us by the gift of a higher viewpoint. This higher viewpoint heals us from the virus of showing ourselves to be higher than others. This very higher viewpoint heals us from the malady of trying to show ourselves to be higher than others. It's the Greek word, huperiphenos, which means a certain haughtiness. For the Jewish Christians in Rome, their circumcision was to show themselves higher than their Gentile brothers and sisters. For the Gentile Christians in Rome, in some cases, their uncircumcision and their blowing off of the expectations of the Mosaic law and the calendrical or calendars of days and kosher foods showed them to be higher than their Jewish brethren. The attainment of a higher viewpoint, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ heals that aspiration to be higher than others. The higher viewpoint is an inner grasp of the mystery, which has now been astonishingly apocalypsed or revealed. The mystery of God's intent, which is to summarize everything in his son, to bring everything under the headship of his son so that he can be all in all. This is his determined will. And this is going to aim us toward Romans 8, 28. God works, is presently working synergistically all things together for the good of those who love God. That is to the good of those whom God has called on the basis of his predetermined purpose. I'm going to show you that Romans 8:28 is not just for believers, but for all of humanity. And we'll get there gradually and get there slowly. And it fans out into Romans 8.32. God gave his son on behalf of us all. He considers us lovers of God long before we become lovers of God. Because he loves us. As, we'll, as we will see. That's just a hint of where we're going. So this mystery heals a lot of ailments through faith says Hebrews eleven three. we understand through faith we understand faith not mere creedal belief or the reciting of a creed you can have creedal belief and still hate your brother you can't participate in the faithfulness of Messiah 
and hate your brother because your brother is Christ. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers, our elder brother. I'm careful what I say here. Faith, not mere creedal belief. The faith I'm talking about is the gift of God, which complements and completes the development of our intelligence by giving us a correct understanding of the mystery of God and enabling us to perceive the totality of God's love, the reach of it, the height of it, the depth of it, the breadth of it, the width of it, in which we then become hopers for the future of the world. So then, this viewpoint is not so much attained as it is gifted to us in Christ who calls us extra say outside of ourselves in him. This viewpoint is in a word faith by which we discern the expression. Once again, we discern the expression of the totality of God's love in the Christ event. The apocalypse of God's righteousness Romans 1.17, the apocalypse of God's righteousness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because therein is the apocalypse or the revelation of God's righteousness. And just to give you this early, Galatians 5.5, 5, we through the spirit wait by faith for the hope of righteousness. Life in the spirit is a waiting by faith for the hope of the rectification of all created reality. That righteousness means we wait for the realization of the rectification of all created reality. We have hope for the future of the world and we have faith in God. So we know that our solution that we offer is not social or political or even human at all, but divine. And this may turn the attention of thousands, if not millions, back to God for the hope of the future of the world. The apocalypse of God's righteousness is the movement and the act of God's love. So abiding now in what we would call God-approved living, as life in the spirit at this clashing Juncture of the ages. Abiding now are the characteristics of participation in Messiah's livingness. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is assurance of things hoped for. And it's the substance of the future in the present. Hope is the confident expectation of those things becoming manifested universally. Love is the gift of God to believers and hopers in the meantime. In the meantime, which I've said before, is really a mean time. In the meantime, we have the gift of love. So hope is not ashamed. It's not just a deferred consolation because love is poured out in our hearts in the meantime. This love loves its enemies because the meantime means that we have mean people who are at enmity with us. This meantime is the time when history has yet to catch up with eschatology. What happened in the Christ event has yet to be fanned out, manifested gloriously in all of creation, in all of its times, diachronically, all through time, backward, forward, universally, all through space, all through creation. That is what I'm looking for. That's what I hope for. So I have hope for the future of the world. I have hope for the future 
of all created reality, even that which we could call past. I have hope for the future of all humanity. I have hope that God will be all in all. And that hope is a certainty. It is rendered certain by the death, the burial, and the resurrection on the third day of Jesus from the dead. These are facts of a creed. The faith I'm talking about is not a creedal belief, but a participation with Jesus Christ's own livingness and knowingness. Romans 8.8, those who are controlled by the flesh, that is, those who are in the sphere of the flesh's control, capital F still, and Paul makes it very clear that the, mo- the ones who are especially under the control of the flesh are the ones who are fulfilling the law with the intention that it will justify them. They're doing the works of the law with the intention that it will justify them, regardless of the death of Christ. The death of Christ is acknowledged as a creedal fact, but not a present impactful reality. I'm careful how I say this, but a minister who calls himself a priest can confess the creedal beliefs and molest a child and has no contradiction there for him. Creedal belief is not righteousness. The righteousness I'm talking about is a rectitude, a God-approved livingness that is a participation with Messiah. You can't participate with Messiah who said, permit the children to come to me and ever think of abusing a child. You say, what does Jesus think of this? It is better that a millstone be wrapped around a person's neck and they be thrown into the deepest part of the ocean than for anyone to offend one of these little ones. You multiply that judgment which is historical and not eternal damnation. Multiply that by hundreds and thousands, and you'll find that a creedal belief that separates others from others by sacraments or rituals has been tried and found wanting in our time, as have many other forms of what is known as Christianity, but which Jesus Christ does not know as Christianity. If we know as he knows, careful how I say this, if we know as he knows, we may share his fate. Because you cannot help coming up against a religious establishment that sets itself apart from others by ritual and by performance. Jesus said haughtiness as well as sexual immorality, greed, theft, murder, envy, but especially huperiphania, showing yourselves above others, does not come because of the failure to fulfill outward rituals, but comes from the innermost heart and comes out to defile the man. Creedal belief in the facts of the traditional gospel, though it's important, is not the faith I'm talking about. The faith I'm talking about is a living participation with Jesus Christ's own faithfulness that continues even after his faithful death on the cross in resurrection. So we're talking here, those who are controlled by the flesh, you can be controlled by the flesh while you recite a creed and even believe the facts of that creed. Those who are controlled by the flesh cannot please God. And I could say, though they confess a creed. Though they go through the motions of ritual and sacrament. But you are not in the flesh, Paul says. 
capital F, but in the spirit, capital S, if indeed the spirit of God actively resides in you. Reciting a creed does not guarantee that the spirit of God is actively residing in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, what is he saying here? This is Paul's way of saying emphatically to those whom he addressed this epistle that they do have the spirit of Christ. He has already said that they, read we if you want, we do belong to him in Romans 1.6. They, read it as we if you want, are not in the sphere in which the flesh is the dominant power, but we are in the sphere in which Christ, through the Spirit, is the dominant power. Jesus Christ is Lord, the dominant power in the life of the Spirit. Those who have the Spirit can, nevertheless, as we know, from Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Thessalonians 5.19. They can extinguish the fire of the Spirit or even grieve the Spirit by acting as if Christ died for nothing and by trying to be justified in God's eyes by the works of the law or by any course of living determined by a denomination or a human organization or a person. Paul said, if there were a law that could give life and righteousness, then God would have given that law. But there is no such law because it all hinges on human performance. So we can't help but be controlled by the flesh if we're attempting to justify ourselves or present ourselves to God as approved with unaided human performance. Or by any course of living, as Heschel said, even supreme human efforts. To have the spirit of Christ and to have been liberated from the sphere of the flesh, which is the same as saying this evil age, the flesh, this evil age, in Galatians 1.4. But then to continue as if we're controlled by the flesh is a contradiction of grace and a flight from reality. It brings us into a place where Christ is of no real value to us. It doesn't mean that he isn't of value to us, but to us, he has no value. If you be circumcised, Paul said, if you go on, you males there and be circumcised, and if you females in the church at Galatians insist on the circumcision of your sons, then Christ will be of no value to you. That's a subjective thing. That means you'll look at Christ and he'll have no value to you. He will never look at you that way. What if I saw you today and knew you today as Christ did? What if I let Christ know you today in me? Well, I have to. That's the job of the pastor. The pastor is under the chief shepherd. He better look at the congregation as Christ does. There's a transformation that happens from looking at Christ on the cross to looking from Christ crucified to the world. So once that happens, Almost every question disappears, but we'll get into that later. So if we attempt to justify ourselves at any given time to approve ourselves before God, it's as if Christ died for nothing and Christ becomes of no value to us, no real value other than to mention him or to put him in a relic over on the side here and put him or put him on a crucifix somewhere and appreciate him from a distance. It's like he, he died, but nevertheless, I've got to do this. And that's not just Roman Catholicism. That's every kind of almost every kind of Protestantism. A lot of what we call Christianity today. Even what we might call 
Christianity today. It brings us into a place where Christ is of no value to us. Not really. And Christmas is just chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Yeah, I had to make one more slam on that. But Romans 8.10. Now, if Christ is in you, your body is dead. You know that old saying, you're dead to me. Doesn't mean you're dead, just means you're dead to me. Well, if Christ is in you, your body is dead as far as being an instrument of sin. The willing instrument of sin. A useful idiot, as Lenin called his people. Those who agreed with his socialistic and communistic views, he called useful idiots. Now, if Christ is in you, your body is dead as far as being, let's say, an instrument or a useful idiot of sin. This agrees with Romans 6.1. But the Spirit keeps giving life. If Christ is in you, the Spirit keeps giving life so that your body is an instrument of righteousness. Which means it agrees with the fact that your members are weapons of righteousness in Romans 6. And with the idea and the reality that the Spirit manifests the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies. How does he do this? By the production of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The kind of love that Jesus manifested and still does. Verse 11, moreover, if the Spirit that awoke... And raise Jesus from the dead. That new saying people say, are you woke? I'd ask it in a different light. Are you woke from the dead? Are you, have you awakened and does Christ shine on you now? If the spirit that awoke and raised Jesus from the dead resides in you, and he does. Then the one who awoke and raised Christ from the dead, that's the Father, will make alive your mortal bodies themselves. There's a power already in you that will one day make your bodies like the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. So then the one who awoke and raised Christ from the dead, that's the Father, will make alive your mortal bodies themselves in bodily resurrection. Here comes hope now through the instrumentality of his spirit who indwells you. The spirit already indwells you. He gives you kind of like a newness of life. He gives you even now a life that's like the life in resurrection, but then in bodily resurrection, and only then will that life be yours completely. But even now, but even then completely. So here in verse 11, we have a promise that evokes eschatological expectation. There's three E's there. Evokes eschatological expectation. Operation Epsilon called hope. This hope is not just a deferred consolation. It's an active expectation. A dynamic expectancy that overflows along with love by the Holy Spirit in the present. Romans 5.5, 5, Romans 15.9. Again, love or hope is a dynamic expectancy which overflows along with love by the Holy Spirit in the present, right now, even now. Romans 5.5, 5, Romans 15.13. In the believing, we have peace and joy. We don't have peace and joy through creedal belief, but in the believing, in the absolute confidence, in the faithfulness of Christ, we have joy and peace and hope overflows in us because faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so... All of this springs forth from God sending forth his son on a divine expedition into this world to save sinners. In Romans eight twelve, consequently, and I'm moving quite rapidly through this to, because I've collected some insights. Eight twelve. Consequently, 
He goes on to say, what is a consequence of the spirit in you? Consequently, siblings, we are not under obligation to the flesh. To live under the dominance of the flesh. The whole lie of addiction and habits and stuff that you can't break is that you're under the obligation to the flesh. But you are no longer under the obligation, under obligation to the flesh. Right there is the answer for every addiction and every habit that's destructive right there. What if God came right up to you next to you and said, you don't need this anymore, and you believed him? You'd drop it and never look back. Well, he is saying that. But here he's not only saying you're not only under, do, the, under obligation to the flesh, to live under the dominance of the flesh. He's also talking to people who are under the law, not just the law of Moses, but any law that human beings conceive of by which they think their human performance gets them some kind of approval with God. The flesh takes control of that, capital F, takes control of that every single time. If it took control of the law so that to try to be justified by the works of the law ends up in terrible frustration, that's Romans 7. Then to be under the dominance of the flesh also includes to be under the dominance of the law. You are no longer under the dominance or the control of the the law, because the law was hijacked by sin, and it obligates those who adhere to it to hope for justification by it, and it never comes. Verse 13, for if you live, if you live dominated by the flesh, you must die. I'll explain that in a minute. That means... You'll be separated from the livingness that's participation with Christ. What Paul is doing here is echoing what God said to Adam. In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Adam did eat from the tree, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, he died, but he was physically alive. So we're talking here about a death that involves a painful self-consciousness that seeks to cover itself with fig leaves and run and hide from God. And the man and the woman were not distinguishable in this. Men and women are not distinguished. There is neither male nor female under sin. Esha did the same thing. Nor is there any male or female in Christ. That's a different kettle of fish. That comes with Galatians. For if you live dominated by the flesh, you must die. That means you'll be dead while you're living. In 1 Timothy 5, 6. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the actions of the body under the control of the flesh, you will live. Now, does this mean we are constantly mortifying ourselves like monks and like fundamentalists think? No, it means that by walking in dependence in the spirit, you're automatically crucifying or putting to death the deeds done by the body under control of the flesh. And then he says you will live. That is, you will have the life of the coming age now in a very substantial measure, but not completely. So it says in Romans 8.13, if you live dominated by the flesh, You will be dead while you're living, separated from fellowship with God, dead to God, as it were. But if, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the actions of the body under the control of the flesh, you will live. That is, you'll have and live the life of the coming age, the life that has conquered death, the life of Christ in you. So to be under no obligation to the flesh means that we are no longer in obligation to the law. Because the flesh commandeered the law. So here we refer back to Romans 8, 6, where it says, 
that the mindset dominated by the flesh is death. But the mindset determined by the spirit is life and peace. And that in turn is the experience of the kingdom of God now. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the opposing interaction of the words flesh and death with spirit and life. There's two opposing things. Flesh and death and spirit and life. Flesh and death are opposed to spirit and life in contrasting interaction. Now, if you go to 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, you see the comparison of the effect of the flesh and what Paul calls the letter. The letter kills. But the spirit gives life. And so if you go to 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9, you see the comparison of the effect of the flesh and the letter. The flesh and the letter, which is the law controlled by sin, does the same thing. Causes death, kills, and condemns because it can't justify. Doing the letter of the law means condemnation, not justification, because the letter condemns and kills. Read 2 Corinthians 3, 6 to 9 for that. Living by the Spirit leads to or is, by definition, life and righteousness or rectification or God-approved livingness. So to be determined by the flesh is death. To be determined by the law or the letter is death. Both of these things are true because the letter is the law in the hands of the flesh. What the letter could not do what the law could not do and that it was weakened through the flesh. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh. The law it's called where Paul gives it a new meaning. The law is the power, the power of the spirit of life has overcome the power of sin leading to death. For those who walk in the spirit, it's realized to be determined by the spirit is to be the beneficiaries of a new covenant, which means that God places his spirit in people and causes them to fulfill his commandments, which are summed up in love for one another. This is God approved livingness. It is life and livingness here and now extra nos. Outside ourselves, extra nos, in Christi, in Christ. And we could even say in spiritu, in Christi, in the spirit of Christ. That's what our life is now. Extra nos, not curvature in adse, curved inside of ourselves so that we're painfully self-conscious covering ourselves with empty rituals and fig leaves, running and hiding from God rather than saying, judge me, God, because I love your judgments. He might even say, Christ is your righteousness if you let him judge you. The death Paul is speaking of in Romans 8, 6 and 2 Corinthians 3 is comparable with the death that came upon Adam when he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that he ate, he died. So if you live determined by the flesh, you'll die. doesn't mean you're under the threat of the sin unto death or you're about to die physically. Death in this case is merely the absence of fellowship with God who is life. It's the absence of participation with Messiah's livingness, which is only possible, as the Greek says, en ptumati, in the spirit. This is not speaking, again, in Romans 8.13, of the threat of physical death, but of temporal separation from the experience of fellowship with the Father and with Jesus Christ, his Son. So it is separation from real joy, which turns on a frantic search for happiness through stimulation or through showing yourselves superior to others through merits or talents of your own. 
So, this isn't, this is the certainty, in other words, that one will be dead while physically alive if controlled by the impulsive desire of the flesh. This is the problem in Sardis. Remember, we taught the Son of Man comes to Sardis, and he said, you have a reputation that you're living, but you're dead. Talking to church members. Revelation 3.1. Having only a creedal belief without participation in Messiah's fidelity, they were dead while they had the reputation of being a lively church. No doubt because of energetic song services, boisterous worship, many projects and activities carried on while determined by the flesh. The flesh has a particularly strong hold on those who adhere to the commandments of the law or any supposed law with the intention of finding justification by it while essentially disregarding the death of Jesus Christ. The impulsive desire of the flesh, I call it IDF, significantly includes an inclination to show oneself to be distinguished in some favorable way from others. Here's a big one. What about rewards, people say? And I say to you, why do you even ask? Is it because you still, even though it's pure, uncontingent grace, there's still something in you that wants to show yourself distinguished from others in the eternity future? Or have you failed to recognize that those who are rewarded don't keep their rewards but throw them at the feet of the crucified Christ? What do you want to know about rewards for? Paul's reward was having no righteousness left of his own. So I'll ask that question back to you. Yeah, I believe in universal salvation even, but what about rewards? In other words, I, I, though I can't be distinguished from the unbeliever as an object of salvation, will I be distinguished from sloppy Christians by reward? And I ask, maybe you will, but I ask, why do you want to know? That's a pastoral stinger. Sorry for it. Not. So, in fact, in Romans, Paul's hitting directly this desire to distinguish oneself above one's fellows. That is the essence of the impulsive desire of the flesh. Romans 8.14, as many as are led, that's governed and guided by the Spirit. Now, this is fourth gear. I've already skipped two and three, like my dad when he's mad at me. As many as are led, that means governed and guided by the Spirit of God, those are the sons of God. Now, listen to what I'm saying here. The sons of God are the eschatological Israel. You, Israel, shall be called the sons of God, the sons of the living God. Those that are led by the Spirit are the sons of the living God. They are the eschatological Israel, which is the prolepsis or the forecast of the universal restoration. I call them the E-Israel, Operation Epsilon. I call them the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. Compare this with Galatians 5.18. They are the sons of God. They are, if they're led by the Spirit, they're the sons of God, meaning they're actually the sons of God in their practice, in their livingness, in their praxis, not just in name. They are those who walk according to the rule of the new creation, a rule that's already effective, according to Galatians 6.15. It's a rule that boasts in nothing but Christ's Crucifixion, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a rule that walks by a faith that works by love. Creedal belief isn't a faith that works by love. A faith that works by love is the participation in the very livingness of the risen Savior. I'm coming back to the beginning here. It's a faith through the Spirit that waits for the hope of 
of righteousness. What does that mean in Galatians 5 5? Does it mean you're still waiting for the hope of your righteousness? No. It means that you're waiting for the rectification, the setting right of all of creation in all of its times throughout all of history. You're waiting for that moment. And that moment comes when the eschatos Adam comes in glory. He doesn't come to take me home. That's one gripe I got with the song we sang today. He didn't come. He doesn't come to take us home. He comes and makes the universe his home and fills it up with himself. He doesn't come to rescue a few lucky lottery winners in a thing called the rapture, which is a stupid and vain hope of those who assume that the world will be destroyed and most of humanity damned. Which is why, the very reason why secularists have taken a hope without faith in God to offer the world, and the world is going for it by the millions. And by the, I think we ought to intercept the millennials and the others that are coming after this new socialistic bent and other ideological bent, right and left. They both end up at the bottom of the same pathetic circle. Intercept them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which there is a hope for the future of the world. Compare this with Galatians 5.18. They are the sons of God in praxis. They are those who walk according to the rule of the new creation, a faith that works by love, a faith through the spirit that waits for the hope of universal rectification, which it sees in the risen Christ because in the risen Christ we see the future of the world. We see the future of all creation in a splendid, resurrected human being. Filled with God, who happens to be God. In other words, the apocatastasis panton, the, res, the restoration of all things. What Jesus called the palingenesia, the new genesis, the, in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. What I call the instauration, the eschatological, soteriological, or saving, radically Christological, divine rectification of everything. Hope for the future of the world, the world of humanity, the world of creation, the universe. Look at Romans 8.15. For you see, you did not receive a spirit of slavery again to slavish fear, but of power, as Second Timothy 1.7 chimes in splendidly here, of love and soteriological mindedness. Sophronizos means thinking in terms of soteriology or salvific will of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery again, leading to slavish fear. On the contrary, you received the spirit of adoption. That's the very thing that belongs to Israel in Romans nine, four, by whom we cry out to God, the father, daddy, Abba. Please notice here that we cry out, we cry out, first person plural. We cry out, Abba. But in Galatians 4, 6, it is the spirit of the Son whom God sent forth into our hearts that cries out, Abba, Father. Is there a contradiction? The spirit of the Son, Jesus Christ's own spirit, the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.19, cries out in our hearts, Abba to Father. But then it says, but we cry out in our hearts, Abba to Father. You see, if you blend Galatians 4.6 with Romans 8.15, nowhere else in the scripture is it more clear that our livingness is a participation with the Son by the Spirit. Because we say Abba, while the Spirit of the Son says Abba, because we participate in the Son by the Spirit in our relationship to the Father, which is intimate, loving, and filial. Filial, not fearful. Nowhere in the scripture elsewhere is it more clear than in the correlation of verses galatians 4 6 and romans 8 15 that participation with the son by the spirit 
is how we live. Abba means that we are the people who have received the adoption as sons. That includes both genders. That we are eschatological Israel, the Israel of God, who are the prolepsis or the forecast or the robin in the spring that announces the universal new creation of all things through the saving impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope we hold out to the world. So, this is socially significant. I'm closing with this. It is socially significant. We could even say it's politically significant. Especially since we live in a historical time, and have for 50 years at least, when hope for the future, maybe 100 years, hope for the future of the world has shifted to political ideologies and human-made solutions. So as Jürgen said, Jürgen Moltmann said 50 years ago, three years before my confrontation with his Savior and mine, a Christian faith in God without hope for the future of the world has called forth a secular hope for the future of the world without faith in God. The message that we preach has the power to pull generations that are already headed toward hope for the world without faith in God back to hope for the world with and through faith in God. It is precisely here where the words apocalypse and apocalyptic must be properly defined as we're using it. We do not use these words to signify the end of the world but rather it's salvific transformation. When I say apocalypse, I don't mean the end of the world. I mean the world's salvific transformation. We do not use these words to signify the destruction of creation and of the majority of humanity, but the destruction of the corruption which has enslaved humanity and all of creation. A transformation through the crucified and risen Messiah. So look, skip ahead to Romans 8, 19. For the creation, that means in its totality. And it would be true for the tree that died a hundred years ago. What was it doing? It was waiting. It's true for all of creation in all of its times. It's true for all of humanity in all of its times. For the creation eagerly awaits the apocalypse of the sons of God. The final glorious manifestation of the sons of God. Why? Because that's going to mean its own liberation. Its own rectification. Its own being set right. We through the spirit wait for the hope of universal rectification by faith. That's our faith. Faith that's just cradled in the facts of the death, burial, and resurrection on the third day of Jesus, death, those facts are important. I believe them with all my heart. But the faith that God gave me is a confidence that all things will be rectified and that in one real sense, in the eternity of God, in the event of Calvary, they already have. So it's not unwise to wait for the manifestation. Picture an atomic bomb. There's a ground zero where it blows and the mushroom cloud. But then what happens is the reverberation and the power from that event at ground zero goes for miles and miles and miles and miles and it wrecks a nation or it wrecks a world. But picture that same kind of omnipotent power in God. It blew up at ground zero. But now the waves come to embrace all of creation in all of its times. And it already has in one sense. Ground zero, it's already blown up. And the omnipotence of God's love is going to manifest it all in the universal rectification and setting right of everything. He'll even give perpetrators of the worst kind of evil 
the righteousness that they lacked in this life. While he gives the victims of the greatest forms of evil, the justice and the satisfaction of justice that they so lacked in this life. That's the power of the cross. I think this gospel ought to intercept a generation before it goes full-fledged into the hopelessness of a hope for change through human effort and political solutions and social ideologies. I believe in a gospel. I believe in a gospel that holds out for hope for the future of the world through faith in God and through faith in Jesus Christ. All creation eagerly awaits. And let me tell you this, it doesn't wait for nothing. It doesn't wait in vain. And neither do we. Thank you, Father. We thank you. We understand. I'm beginning to grasp just a little bit what you called me to do. And it's oddly through the statement of a German theologian made three years before you brought me into your life. Father, I pray for the young people coming up the generations to come, the generation that's here now. The Christian faith in God that has a hope for the future of the world will supplant the hopeless hope of a secular hope for the future of the world without faith in God. I ask this in Jesus' name.